Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Mensel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In the Old Dogs Ramble, we're going to discuss our great and abiding fondness for the clutter in our lives. That will allow us to segue into some great advice about how to unclutter your living space. We'll debate about whether younger people really give older people the respect they deserve. We'll review a new film about Dr. Ruth Westheimer. We'll take a peek over a neighbor's wall at a nude mannequin yard party. We'll get a bird's eye view of a drone that barks like a dog. And in the Old Dogs interview, we'll have a talk with Tom Fable, a guy who has had quite a varied career as a lawyer and a jurist, but now spends a lot of his time both performing on stage and playwriting. Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, we have been contemplating moving. And oh, really? w- whenever you contemplate moving, you think about getting rid of stuff. And I am a world-class stuff stuffer. Okay. And uh, what conclusions have you drawn? That, that uh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of effort. And the biggest problem I have with stuff is uh, thinking that someday that's going to come in handy. Yeah. Books, for example. Okay. I have got a ton of books that I've never read. I haven't read in two decades, but someday I'm going to read that book, and I'm going to regret it if I get rid of it. All right. And you? Um, Yes, I actually have a number of books that are exactly in that category, and I'll tell you why I keep them. Because if anybody happens to pass that bookshelf and notices the titles, they'll think better of me. (laughs) Of course. Another weakness I have is clothes. Uh I have a tough time throwing away a piece of clothing that's still got a few good miles on it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's stuff that's too tight, uh, looks like it's from the 60s, you know. So as a result, I have... Too many clothes. Are you saying you still have bell-bottom pants in your closet? A complete set. Oh, God. No, I don't. I don't. But I, I have a, I have a trouble getting rid of clothes. I should periodically harvest the ones that either don't fit or uh, look pretty shabby. But, you know, those shabby ones are sometimes the most comfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed you look a lot more comfortable these days. I have been compared to an unmade bed, <laughs> and the bed usually wins. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm built for comfort. Okay? What else? What, what else is uh, kind of in your house that really you should get rid of, but you haven't? Um, you know, one place I've never attacked is the kitchen. Kitchen uh. stuff. Pots, pans, things that someday you're going to need that pot. Or someday you're going to need that muffin maker that uh, will let you uh, make two dozen muffins at the same time. You know what impresses me about Mm. what you just said is the fact that you can make muffins. (laughs) I don't know how to make muffins. I am able to make muffins. Uh Do I make muffins? No, of course not. I just had a thought about someday that I think we should start scheduling that day, okay? Just schedule that day when you are going to watch that DVD. Ah, okay? okay. Put it on your calendar, January 2nd, 2022. You are going to watch uh, 12 Angry Men, for example. Okay. 
Yeah, thanks for that tip, Jim. It's uh, pretty useless. <laughs> Another thing, how about rusty tools? Do you have anything like that in your garage? Paul, I live in Houston. Everything I own is rusty. Exactly, including us. <laughs> but I have some tools that are really pretty useless at this point because mm. they are rusted out. You know what I have in my garage, Paul, that you'll be impressed by? Some skeletons? Uh, no, no, no. That's in my closet. I have a snow shovel. You're I have kidding. A, I'm serious. I have a snow shovel in my garage. A remainder from Michigan 30 years ago, 40 30, years ago. Yes, 35 years ago. And I hang on to that snow shovel with a death grip. Oh, my. Yeah. Why? Because. Because it's there. I see. Because someday it's going to snow in Houston, <laughs> and you will be called on by your neighbors to bail out their cars. And right? I'm going to rent that sucker out for $5 a minute. Absolutely. Well, you know, that does lead us up to our first pod nugget today. It's some useful tips about to unclutter the cluttered. I can't wait to start talking about it. If your living space is shrinking so that you just have little pathways through your house, well, we've got some tips for helping you declutter your life. They come to us from the Washington Post for November 22, 2018. They consulted several professional organizers for these tips, so pick and choose what might work for you. Okay, here's one. Identify, and this is a great one, identify tiny projects that will give you a lot of satisfaction. You work in small steps, doing what you can in a half hour. That's a good one. Yep. Take four boxes and label them trash, storage, donate, and for sale. Use these boxes for sorting as you declutter. Schedule a home pickup date for a charity. Having a firm date will motivate you to move ahead quickly. That's a good one. If you're giving items to your children or grandchildren, do it now rather than someday. Oh, yeah. This is a good way to find out if they really want the items or are just being kind. And finally, invite people over. <laughs> Having people over is a great motivator for clearing items off tabletops, counters, floors, and coffee tables. Except they usually end up in a closet. Yeah, I like to hide things. Okay, I've added another one. Avoid garage sales unless they are your own. Excellent. As a senior, have you earned the right to be called Mr., Ms., or Mrs. rather than by your first name? The issue was widely debated on social media recently. This item comes to us from the Houston Chronicle dated March 25th, 2019. The debate was generated by an old talk show clip from 1989 featuring Maya Angelou. A young member of the audience called her by her first name, and she corrected the young person that her name was Miss Angelou, not Maya. She went on to say, I'm 62 years old, I've lived so long and worked so hard that a young woman like you, or any other, have no license to come up to me and call me by my first name. The clip was unearthed and tweeted by Pierre Phipps, a young man in his late 20s. He was surprised at the huge response, which reflected both regional, cultural, and racial differences regarding elder titles of respect. Now, Phipps is an African-American from Chicago with lots of older female relatives from the South. He was raised to respect his elders by using the appropriate title, and he saw nothing wrong with Maya Angelou's response. For blacks coming from the Jim Crow South, calling a grown black person by their first name was a sign of disrespect. 
Many younger people who responded to the tweet thought Miss Angelou's response was elitist. They felt that everyone, once they turn 18, is entitled to the same amount of respect. Anyway, what do you think? Let's hear from you. You can respond at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And thank you, Mr. Conlon. Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the 90-year-old sex therapist and author, is the subject of a documentary film called Ask Dr. Ruth. I can remember the first time I saw Dr. Ruth. It was the 80s, but it was still rather shocking that this sweet little lady was so comfortable talking about body parts you didn't normally talk about. Like what, Paul? Well, uh, part one and part two. (laughs) She deserves credit for bringing the bedroom into our living rooms. She uses direct language and a cheerful manner to normalize human sexuality. And her upbeat attitude is especially significant considering that she was orphaned by the Holocaust at the age of 10. Now, the AARP has picked this documentary as a movie for grown-ups. Now, caution, the movie does contain explicit sexual language, but it is worth the potential embarrassment to revisit this truly exceptional person who has spent a lifetime fostering healthy relationships. Now, speaking of body parts... Disputes with a neighbor can get nasty, but they are seldom creative. We wanted to celebrate one that got at the naked truth creatively. This item appeared in the New York Post for March 20th, 2019. Jason Windus of Santa Clara, California, built a tall fence around his yard to secure his dogs. Well, a neighbor complained to the city that it violated an ordinance that fences could only be 36 inches tall. That's not much of a fence, Paul. That seems like a strange regulation, but Windus complied and cut his fence down to a maximum three foot tall. Then he decided to add a creative touch. He set up a backyard party scene with five naked mannequins that was visible to all his neighbors because of the low fence. He then added a sign which read, Reserved seat for the nosy neighbor that complained about my fence to the city. I guess it reaffirms the old adage that clothes don't make the mannequin. Ooh. All right, here's the question everyone is asking. What flies through the air and barks like a dog? You know, Jim, in all honesty, that could have been me (laughs) on several nights that I have had in the past. Really? I don't think I want to know. Well, the real answer is a drone that's used to herd cattle and sheep. Yes, a drone. This nugget comes to us from the Washington Post dated March 7, 2019. Farmers in New Zealand have found a new use for a drone that could put some sheep dogs out of work. How sad. Yeah, they'll probably form a protest. One farmer reported that a herding job that used to require two people and two teams of dogs is now handled by one drone. In less than half the time. One popular drone model costs about $4,000 and has a recording and playback feature that can capture the sound of a herding dog. (laughs) The barking drones seem to move livestock faster and with less stress than real dogs. Stress for whom? How do you measure something like that? (laughs) Uh, The drones also have other uses such as checking on water and feed levels remotely. Herding dogs can relax. They won't be totally replaced by drones. 
In most cases, the drones and dogs work together. Oh, I'll bet they have lots of fun at the uh, post-herding parties. Really, going out drinking together. (laughs) As one farmer pointed out, dogs have a longer lifespan, they can work in bad weather, and they don't need to be recharged. Of course, drones don't poop. Tom Fable never intended to be a lawyer, which is unusual since he went to law school. On graduating, he served for 16 years on the staff of the Minnesota Attorney General. He followed that with 20 years in private practice, with a one-year hiatus as the deputy mayor of St. Paul. He then returned to the public sector as a county prosecutor and as an appellate court judge for two Indian reservations. In retirement, he has filled his time as an amateur musician, actor, golfer, and successful playwright. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. You graduated in 1968, as I did, and many people call that the defining year of the decade. So much happened that year. How did that affect you? Well, I'll tell you, the day or two days after we graduated from college, Paul, I was married to my wife, with whom I've been for now 51 years. But we were in Chicago in the summer of 1968. I was working at a steel mill, came home one evening and turned on our little television set and saw this riot taking place in Grant Park. And, gee, that looks like fun. So the following night when I came home from the steel mill, we cleaned up and uh, went down and spent the evening in Grant Park with the remnants of the uh, what had been going on uh, during the Democratic National Convention. But that was a, a very... Um, interesting summer, the entire summer of 68, and 68 through 71 in Chicago were very interesting. Richard Daly was the mayor, we had the Chicago 7 trial, so that that was an interesting period of time, obviously, and it affected all of us. Now, after law school, you immediately started a 16-year career uh, with the Attorney General's office in Minnesota. That's Uh, correct. Explain your choice. How did that happen? Well, going to law school, I didn't think I was going to be a lawyer. I got the notion in my mind along the way that I thought I would like to work for the government, and I was thinking city planning or some other administrative position. But as I was in law school, I, I kind of came to like what I was doing, but I, I liked the idea of public service very much. And I had an opportunity after my second year to clerk with the Minnesota Attorney General. We came up. I liked it. I liked the people. And uh was uh, hired uh, by the new attorney general when he was elected in 70, and I applied and was hired and went to work there and stayed there for 16 years, and they were wonderful years. I had a number of different jobs. I ended up for the last seven years or so uh, supervising a group of divisions that were doing consumer protection work, antitrust work, and criminal work, and I, uh, I along the way, became a uh, a prosecutor. I would run around the state prosecuting cases uh, for county attorneys in small communities, high-profile cases that they needed help with, murder cases, high-profile white-collar crime cases, that kind of stuff. And I, and I loved it. It was, a, it was a great period of time. Your career with the Attorney General's office was followed by 20 years of private practice. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I had a hard time holding a job, maybe. I, I, was in, <laughs> I was in private practice for 20 years. I took one year off in that period to be the deputy mayor of the city of St. Paul. Uh, along the way, I, I uh, picked up a couple of judgeships. I was uh, an appellate judge on a couple of Indian reservations. Uh, when my youngest son graduated from college, I had enough of private practice, and I went back into the public sector as a, a white-collar crime prosecutor over in Hennepin County. So anyhow, I did that for another five years. I finished up with my work as a, a, a judge on Indian reservations, oh, 
three, four years ago, I gave up my license, and I haven't done any law since then. You served one year as a deputy mayor of St. Paul. What was that like? That was about as much fun as I had doing anything in my, in my career. A, a good friend of mine who had actually worked for me at the Attorney General's office became the mayor of St. Paul. In 1998, he was running to be governor, and he called me up and he asked me if I would come down and be his deputy mayor. So I did, and I was essentially the mayor because he was off campaigning the whole year. It was just great fun. The very first day I'm on the job, the telephone rings. It's the winner. It's our person in charge of all the uh, public works. And she said, should we plow the snow today? I said, how the hell am I supposed to know if you're supposed to plow? <laughs> well, she said, it snowed last night. I said, well, what do you usually do? She said, well, we usually figure out how much snow there is, and we do it. You know, this is a $400,000 decision. I said, sure, what the hell, plow the snow. You know, but it was fun. I did a lot of ribbon cutting. I, we had to hire a new police chief and fire chief and a lot of other things. And then you were an appellate court judge for two Indian reservations. Uh, tell me about that. What was that all about? Well, I got involved with one of the Dakota nations down in the southern part of the state of Minnesota doing some work for some of their leaders. Uh, and then they asked me, to, when I was trying to retire, they asked me to be a judge. And I said, no, I've, I've had enough of this craziness. But then they called me back a couple weeks later and said, well, would you at least be our appellate court? I said, well, I said, how many appellate judges you got? One. Well, they're sovereign and one judge, so there are no dissenting opinions, and at the end of the line, there's no Supreme Court review. So sure, I'll do that. But there wasn't very much of that. But it was kind of fun. So is that when your interest in acting started? <laughs> not, not at all. You know, I, I, Although, you know, I was accused of being an actor on the, uh, in front of trials uh, periodically, but um, so I think I was like maybe 64, 65 years old when I was asked to be in a performance having to do with the celebration of the, uh, I think it was the 125th anniversary of the Constitution, so then I started auditioning for plays, and I got involved in a number of community theater performances after that. Do you normally get uh, typecast, Tom? Is there a, a role that you normally get cast for because of the way you act or look? Well, I, I suspect there's some truth to that. I, as you know, I'm, I'm a big guy. I have a loud voice, uh, and I guess I project some measure of power. So I, I've often been cast as a prosecutor a few times i've been a judge i've been a cop i've been a gangster a few times uh and they say in this play right now i'm being cast as a belligerent bigot so yeah i, I haven't been uh, the romantic lead in anything yet paul i'm waiting for that to happen i, I don't <laughs> i think it's, it's probably too late for both of us and that's well, huh? i think you're right so but, we have to uh, touch on uh, your recent uh, playwriting also Tell us about that. You uh, you co-wrote a play. Yeah. In, in the winter of 2017, we had an article in our magazine, uh, a biographical piece on two remarkable St. Paulites, a, a husband and wife by the name of William and Nellie Francis, African-Americans, who came to St. Paul in the late 1880s. Uh, William became a lawyer uh, in St. Paul, and both he and Nellie were very active in the civil rights movement in the early period. She was a suffragist, uh, and, and they were real community leaders. In 1924, and this is kind of in the middle of their story, they decided to buy a home in a newly developing area in the southwestern part of St. Paul, white area. The neighbors didn't want them. Uh, they did everything possible to keep them from moving in. Petitions filed against them, demonstrations up and down the street. Finally, two cross burnings uh, in front of the house trying to drive them out. 
They stuck it out. They stuck it out and uh, lived there for a couple of years until William was appointed ambassador. Uh, and then, unfortunately, he died when he was on his service to Liberia. But when I read about this incident, this staggering incident of, of profound racism in St. Paul, in the area where I grew up, it was just a kick in the stomach. None of us had ever heard of that. And I, I spoke to people from the area. You know, I've lived down there all my life. So we did some more research on it, and I, I immediately got in touch with a dear friend of mine, Eric Wood, uh, an African-American himself. I said, Eric, there's a play in this story. And he read the story, he agreed with me, and we went to work on drafting a play having to do with it. Uh, it ultimately was produced this past February at the Landmark Center, and it was very successful. We had about four major newspaper stories. Uh, we sold out every performance, every evening performance out at the Landmark. The play itself was uh, filmed by the local cable television uh, station, and it is now on YouTube. So if you went to Not In Our Neighborhood, which was the name of the play, Not In Our Neighborhood, on YouTube, you could see the whole play. You, you uh, also mentioned in your bio that uh, you're a musician, too. Tell us about that part of your life. Well, I've I played the harmonica for years and years and years. Uh, at the time of the death of my mother-in-law, I was down playing hymns for her, and a, another man that I've known for some years stopped in to see her who plays the guitar and was established the practice of once a week coming to this nursing home, playing his guitar and singing for a group of people, and he asked me to join him with my harmonica, which I did, and that has evolved over time now. He's no longer with us, but there have been four or five of us who go to a couple nursing homes a couple times a month. I, I put together the music program. Now I, now I play the guitar. Uh, we get 15 or 20 people from in these nursing homes, and we always sing, uh, you know, folk songs, old-time uh, music, uh, uh, some hymns, some spirituals and other things, and put together a program, and uh, they kind of come, too, when they hear music. It's It's been nice. We've enjoyed that. So are there any groupies in, in your work as a musician? or Do you have a tour bus? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, our, our groupies, uh, yeah, they like to hold our hands a little bit every once in a while. That's about as far as getting being groupies goes. <laughs> so what does the future hold for you, Tom? You've got some projects in the works? <laughs> yeah, I, when people ask you, as a retired person, what do you do? I, I always say, well, I can tell you what I did yesterday, and I can tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow, but what I'm going to be doing a year from now, I have no idea. There's some writing. uh we have four grandchildren in town that we're busy with. I have property up in the North Woods that we maintain. Uh, our, our four children are around. My wife is healthy. We like to golf a little in the summer. Uh, so we're active. I intend to continue to be active in the theater and with our music stuff. And if other projects come along, we'll, we'll take them on. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon. <laughs>